Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Behind the Numbers. My name is Dave Bookbinder. I'm a senior director at Pine Hill Group. This is the show where we dig a little deeper to understand what really matters most in business. And today we're going to be talking about the topic of class action lawsuits. And I have a guest here who helps to defend against such class action lawsuits. And please welcome Jim Griffith, who's a partner at Rieger, Rizzo, and Darnell. Jim, welcome to Behind the Numbers. Dave, thanks for having me on. It's great uh, to be here. That's a pleasure. Thrilled to have you here. So before we dive into the, the meaty stuff, right. uh, let's not make any assumptions that people really understand what a class action lawsuit is. I mean, I, you know, in my mind, it's a bunch of people uh, pooling together, if you will, in one class, if you will, against some other company. But why don't you talk a little bit about what a class action lawsuit is to set the table? Sure, that's fine. So class action lawsuit is basically a procedural device that allows a group of people to join together as plaintiffs to bring the same claims against you know one defendant or perhaps a group of defendants and the essence of it or the, or the modus or the, the reason behind it is that we want to have efficiency right if there's one person who can stand up in a courtroom and tell their story and have that story really apply to everybody and that'll be sufficient for everybody then we should just be efficient and and have the class action. Uh, but there's a lot of hurdles to getting there because it, it is an exception to the usual way in which we litigate. We normally litigate one plaintiff versus one defendant. So we have th these rules that guide the court in terms of saying whether or not a class should go forward. So in a very typical class action, Dave, um, it's brought under what we would call Rule 23B3. And the judge would have to look at a number of different factors to decide should it go forward or not. And he'll look at you know, is the class numerous enough? In other words, do we have enough people in it to really make it uh, efficient or can we join them all together? Are there common facts, questions, common questions of law, common questions of facts that apply to everyone? Uh, is the plaintiff typical? Uh, we have a named plaintiff. A named plaintiff is the one that would represent the class. Is that named plaintiff, is, are their claims typical of everybody else in the class? Uh, or are they going to be subject to what might be unique defenses? Maybe they're subject to statute of limitations, whatever. And then finally, he'll look at, is this an adequate class representative? Meaning, do they understand their role? And do they have adequate class counsel, somebody who really understands a class action, who can bring the case on behalf of everybody? And then they'll get into some nitty-gritty about whether or not a trial would be efficient or not. They'll look at things that, that are called superiority or predominance. Uh, and say, is this a, a superior way of handling it, and, or will the individual issues sort of overwhelm the common issues? And if so, we won't have a class. But basically, that's the gist of it. That's what a class action is all about. Gotcha. And this is how you spend most of your professional time, correct? That's what I do as a large part of my practice. It's not the only part of my practice, but it is a large part of my yeah. practice. Yeah, and the firm does more than just this, right? Yes, yeah, so Rieger Rizzo Darnall is a 50 attorney, approximately 50 attorney uh, law firm. So based in the Mid-Atlantic region, it really has two practice groups uh, under a broad umbrella. The first part is sort of the business, transactional, the advisory. And that'll have people like corporate lawyers, real estate lawyers, trust and estate lawyers, uh, regulatory attorneys, all these people that can help businesses you know, conduct the day-to-day -day transactional advisory stuff. And of course, an employment law practice. And then we have, on the other side of the fence, uh, the litigation group, which is the group that I'm with. And so these are the people that are in the courtroom a lot. Uh, that's one of the reasons that attracted me to this firm uh, when I left my, a very large law firm several years ago. 
Uh, this group really has a number of people who spend a lot of time in the courtroom, and that's really uh, was a significant factor for me. Gotcha. Are, are there companies that are particularly vulnerable, vulnerable to class action lawsuits? I, I guess everybody is. I guess it depends on um, the scope of your business, how big you are, uh, and what, um, you know, how many customers you have. That can be an issue. Uh, I really, in terms of trends, I mean, in terms of, it's difficult to talk about, I guess, um, class action trends without talking about a particular industry. But if I were going to go cross industry and, and be industry agnostic, I would say almost everybody is vulnerable these days to a number of different uh, types of class actions. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is the data breach lawsuit. So this is somebody hacks into your system, they get access to data, they do what they're going to do with that lawsuit. And those lawsuits can be very difficult, class actions can be difficult, uh, because they typically get filed almost right away, right? They, they, as soon as they hear that there's a breach, some class action lawyer is going to jump on it. And then, of course, there's going to be regulatory involvement, almost certainly, that follows that or along, that parallels that. So everybody's got to worry about those. The second thing, and it's similar, is data privacy. One thing's a lot of a lawyer, a lot of employment lawyers, or excuse me, uh, a lot of uh, companies may not know about, uh, is that they are there are biometric data privacy laws out there, and a lot of them have these, um, you know, our uh, time machines or time uh, recording devices for employees, and they'll swipe their thumb or their their iris, and then they'll transmit that to some data processor that's going to process the time. There are now uh, biometric data privacy laws that say that transmission of the data without their consent is violation and there are class actions that are getting mm. filed based on that. Um, another area I would worry about today for most businesses would be sort of the employment related stuff. Um, I think very much the Me Too movement continues to go on, uh, continues to be an issue for people. I think the um, another one that's coming out now are sort of the ADA uh, website compliance issues, that is the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, believe it or not, you need to have a website that is compliant with that law that, so that people who are hearing impaired uh, or sight impaired mm. can access your, your website properly. So I think that's going to be a huge trend for people. And I think another area that's really uh, been hot lately in the employment arena has been the idea of anti-poaching. And you're seeing a lot of people, uh, particularly in uh, retail establishments, franchisees, um, or even in the healthcare field, where behind the scenes they're agreeing not to poach each other's employees. And of course, that creates a potential antitrust issue for a lot of businesses. And so that's becoming a bigger issue th yeah. today. So that's sort of the ones across the industry as opposed to being industry specific. Gotcha. So we have a couple of minutes left in this segment. Um, you said a lot of interesting things. For the viewers who might want to contact you, Jim, what's the best way to reach you? So the best way, usually by cell phone, 215-500-3467, or by my email, Dave, which is just J. Griffith, G-R-I-F-F-I-T-H, at RiegerLaw.com, R-E-G-E-R. Great. Names are on the screen so people can see that and make it easy for spelling. So lawsuits in general could be a nuisance or they could be catastrophic or economic damages. In general, is there anything particular about a class action lawsuit that makes it any more dangerous or potentially damaging for companies? 
Yeah, I think there's a couple things, Dave. I, I would point to what I'll call sort of maybe the monetary dangers, and then I'll point to sort of the mo non-monetary dangers. Uh, the monetary dangers, of course, are exposure uh, in terms of the, the dollars uh, of damages that you're exposed to. And the way you really get to that is take the number of class no uh, members, figure out what the, the damage amount is going to be, multiply it together, that's your exposure. Are they going to hit on that? Obviously, that depends a lot on what I do. Uh, but that's, that's a concern for businesses that will sort of amp up the blood pressure a little bit when they start seeing those kinds of potential numbers. And that, of course, creates a tremendous incentive to want to settle so that you're not faced with that kind of catastrophic type uh, business ending um, exposure. But a lot of things that people don't realize, too, is not only are, the, and we're still sticking with the monetary issues here, not only are you going to have to hire somebody like me to defend you in this lawsuit, you're going to have to consider the very real possibility that if the plaintiffs win or if you end up settling with them, you're going to have to pay their attorney's fees. Uh, there are procedural devices, there are statutes that can allow the court to transfer that expense onto the defendant. And very typically in a class action settlement, the defendant is going to have to pay some portion of those fees. So that's the monetary concerns. The non-monetary concerns for business that makes it a class action dangerous are really sort of reputational. Um, they're very newsworthy events. Uh, plaintiff's firms that are good at this, that have been doing it a long time, crank out that press release. They, they got it going. They have contacts in the media already ready to go when they file these things. And they put it out there all in an effort to put maximum pressure on you, the business, to settle. They want, it, they want to get it out there because they know if it gets out there, number one, it's going to potentially create more people that are going to want to join the class. Uh, two, it's going to give them, uh, maybe it'll put regulators or give regulators information about what's going on with your business uh, that you might not otherwise want them to see or know about and that's going to create some regulatory issues. They're going to do all these things to really try and amp up the pressure on you and make you settle quickly. So those are really the danger areas I see for, for the class action. Yeah, so class actions, it sounds like they're not going to be a nuisance type of lawsuit. If a class action lawsuit is... Is it, is it approved? Is that the right terminology for someone to move forward? Right. I mean, nuisance may be a good word sometimes for a class action, okay. actually, Dave, because you're right. You may get a plaintiff who, for whatever reason, doesn't meet all those criteria I talked about in the beginning. There's not enough people in the class, or maybe their claims are very different from other people's. And, and the court's going to look at this and say, okay, well, it, it's not a class. Um, and, and I've certainly been involved with class actions where we've been able to defeat the case without even getting to the whole idea of should this be a class or not. We just look at the merits of the case and say, oh, this is baloney. Uh, we can knock this out on a motion to dismiss, which is an early uh, motion that we can file in the proceedings, or at a motion for summary judgment, which is one that's a bit more fact-based that occurs later on in the proceedings. And we won't even get to the class certification issues. Um, so in that sense, sometimes they can be a nuisance just like uh, any other case. However, um, it's that element of exposure and the non-monetary risks that I talked about that really create the headache for the company. Gotcha. I think that's a good spot to take a break. I know we've got to pause for a commercial break, so don't go anywhere, Jim. You don't go anywhere either. We'll be right back on Behind the Numbers after this quick break.
delicious and great on the go. And that's perfect for me. Thanks, Liz. A woman without a lot of time. Whether you're a gourmet cook or just want to eat like one, visit Rostelli Market Fresh, your home for the freshest locally sourced ingredients to please everyone who loves great food. Our organic meats, quality seafood, and free-range poultry are cut fresh to order. Chefs create culinary-inspired prep foods made fresh every day, which pair nicely with our vast selection of fine wines and spirits. Choose from handmade pastas, artisan cheeses, organic produce, and grocery items, all from the finest purveyors. Rostelli Market Fresh, from our family to yours. RVN TV is a platform for people of any industry to share their story. Over 285,000 viewers are tuning in to RVN TV shows monthly. We guarantee a great experience that you'll be sharing with everyone you know while increasing your personal and company's brand awareness. But what is your brand? According to Forbes, it's a combination of your logo, your product, your design and feel, and your personality. Did you know that aside from being a guest, we offer even more opportunity to boost your brand? Adding your company logo and website on screen during your interview will allow viewers to recognize your brand instantly. Incorporating images and video clips is another great way to showcase your product during your live segment. Let viewers see how good you really are. And most importantly, there's you and your interview. For less than the cost of a newspaper, direct mail, or a magazine ad, you can leave our studio and within 48 hours have a permanent digital copy of your live segment to link to your social media, embed into your company website, or use in email marketing. Investing in your brand is so very important, and we can't wait to have you as a guest. Shelter dogs aren't broken. They've simply experienced more life if they were human, we would call them wise. They would be the ones with tales to tell and stories to write. The ones dealt a bad hand who responded with courage. Do not pity a shelter dog. Adopt one. Say we've got grit and we'll take it as a compliment because it's our uncommon drive our spark within that brings us together and sets us apart. We are temple made. And when others take shortcuts, when others take breaks, when others take the easy way, we take charge. Hi everyone, welcome back to Behind the Numbers. I'm Dave Bookbinder. Today my guest is Jim Griffith, partner at Rieger, Rizzo, and Darnell. And we're talking class action lawsuits today. Yep. Covered a lot of ground in the first segment, but Jim, where do, com where do people come up with ideas for these type kinds of class action lawsuits? <laughs> well, if you're on the defense bar, you might say they're, uh, they come up with them from the deepest, darkest parts of their soul, Dave. But <laughs> <laughs> well played. <laughs> but uh, no, seriously, I think, you know, I can't speak for what all plaintiffs class action lawyers do, but let me give you some of the tricks of the trade that I'm aware of. Um, a lot of what the plaintiffs lawyers do is they just see what the government is doing, right? 
so if the government is starting an investigation or, or has made findings, they'll piggyback of all, off of all those investigations and those findings and use that uh, in a class action lawsuit. Uh, I think one example we're more than likely to see in the near future is going to arise out of this whole college admission scandal stuff. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if you know this, but one thing the government has done is they brought criminal cases against all, all these players in this scheme. And they brought it under a criminal statute called RICO, which is Racketeer Influenced Corrupt Organizations okay. Act. That sounds and serious. It, it's, a, it's a serious statute. It's one they use to prosecute the mafia. And it, you know, it's sort of become, um, it's sort of been used to prosecute a lot of different corrupt organizations. So in any event, you watch. Uh, if the government starts making its case on the RICO stuff, if they really start uh, showing that there was a net criminal enterprise going on here, that'll make its way into a class action lawsuit where somebody's gonna say, hey, my kids, all these kids didn't get into this school and that there's a RICO violation and you know, we're entitled to treble damages under the mm. RICO statute. So I think that's um, gonna be something to really pay attention to. Uh, the other way they can get their ideas is if you are a publicly traded company, the plaintiff's bar out there, they align with union pension funds a lot. And they will have a deal with the pension funds where they will agree to monitor their investments. And if something bad happens to come out in the news about that particular investment, then they will agree to take on that class action lawsuit on behalf of the union. And so they really just sort of lock right in on the, on the class action stuff. And then uh, I've even seen people, they'll offer a free clinic, right? And they'll bring people in for you know, free legal services for whatever the issue may be. And they'll interview them in this process and find out you know, if there's anything uh, that they've been through, say for example, in an employment case where um, you know, maybe they were drug screened or they had a criminal background check and they'll ask them, oh well did the employer do X, Y, and Z because they're looking for a case under the Fair Credit Reporting Act as to whether or not you know, a case yeah. you know, they violated the law when they did the criminal background check. So there's a lot of different tricks that the plaintiff's lawyers use that you have to be aware of and it's, it's often helpful to go after you know, the plaintiff and say, well how did you get into this case, what brought you into this case, because you may find out that this is really being run by the lawyers and not by the plaintiff. So what, how do companies avoid getting involved in a class action in the first place? Is it, is it at all possible? Yeah, that's, that's a tough one, right? I mean, because businesses, you know, they want to be efficient and they want to do things in uniform ways uh, so that we can, you know, uh, make it simple and easy for the company, but, and that can lead to uniformity and uniformity can lead to class certification. But, uh, if I were gonna give people advice of staying out of the crosshairs, one I would say, have a really good compliance program. Uh, make sure you're following the law. I mean, that's always a good uh, way to, to stay out of trouble anyway. And maybe if you're a mid-sized business and you're not gonna have a big compliance team, I think I would, you know, at least do an audit, you know, of your contracts or an audit of your litigation or potential litigation maybe once a year uh, or, you know, once every two years, something like that. Uh, the other thing that businesses absolutely have to do today, David, is they have to, have to 
get an arbitration clause in their contracts that has a class action waiver in it. And I realize I'm probably putting myself out of business here in terms of the class actions, but you know, for the benefit of my clients and for the benefit of, <laughs> of the business community at large, it really is important that they, they make sure they have these devices uh, built into their contractual arrangements, uh, particularly with consumers. And you have to be careful about it because you need the right language and you need to make sure that, especially if you're contracting over the web, that you get it done the right way. But there are so many good cases out there right now from the United States Supreme Court on the Federal Arbitration Act that really favor that forum over the judicial forum for resolving disputes. And if you have a proper class action waiver, in many instances, you're going to be able to enforce it. And that puts the class action right to bed. Mm. Jim, tell the audience again how people can contact you. Sure, so again, the best way to contact me is through my cell phone, 215-500-3467, or through my email, jgriffith at riegerlaw.com. Thank you. So you're a very well-credentialed guy. You're also a modest guy, as I understand it. Are there any things that you're particularly proud of that you can share? <laughs> uh, the part of the, uh, the talk I, uh, I probably loathe the most because it is talking about me. Um, I guess um, from the class action perspective, I was brought into um, a class action that was pending down in the Southern District of Florida. This was brought under that same statute I mentioned a minute ago, RICO. And it was against uh, an entire industry. It was a national class action. And I had been asked by the client to take over for another law firm. And the case had been languishing for quite some time. And I was able to get a dismissal in the district court and they appealed it to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. So I had to go argue it in the Court of Appeals. And the other side hired Robert Blakey, who happens to be the author of the RICO statute. I mean, he wrote the book, literally wrote the statute for the federal government. And they brought him in to argue the case and I went up against him and I, w and I won. So I was particularly wow. proud of that moment and uh, he, he acknowledged that I had been very clever in the argument. <laughs> so I, I like that. Um, I think another, another thing I would point out that I, you know, maybe gives me some unique um, qualifications is I've actually tried uh, class and collective action. Uh, we had tried to win the case on summary judgment. Um, we were unsuccessful and the court let it go to trial. And so I literally was in a courtroom for two weeks deposing, or excuse me, cross-examining the named plaintiffs uh, in this lawsuit, uh, which was brought under the wage and hour uh, laws, the Fer federal, excuse me, Fair Labor Standards Act. And you know, it took a two-week trial and, and we ended up getting a jury verdict for the defense. So I was very proud of that, you know, because obviously the stakes were pretty high uh, if you had lost a trial. Uh, so that was good. And, you know, maybe the one I'm probably m most proud of doesn't even involve a class action. I represented a guy who was a plaintiff um, against this company and it involved pension funds. And when it finished and we had got a very good result for him. He was very pleased with it. He wrote me a note and said, you know, your honesty and your diligence really changed my entire view of people in your profession. And, you know, I still have that email. <laughs> I'm not deleting that one. Quite uh, testimonial. That one's, that one's uh, I'm going to keep. 
Very good stuff. Thanks for sharing that. <clears throat> yeah. Let's jump back into uh, the meat, so to speak. So yeah. we've covered what companies might be able to do to avoid it. What happens when they're served and they're now facing a class action lawsuit? What do they do? Yeah. I think in a lot of ways, you know, a lot of it's going to be what you normally might do, right? You call your lawyer, you grab your insurance policies and start looking through them or, or having the lawyer look through them to see if there's going to be coverage because it could get very expensive. Um, the things that I like to tell my clients to do is, and work with me on in the beginning, is let's get a sense of really what's at stake. Who is in this class? Let's go through, let's go through the definition that they put in their class action complaint. Let's work that against the data that you have and try and get an early understanding of who is in the class because that's going to tell us a number of different things. One, it's going to tie into that numerosity argument. Is the class numerous enough to be certified as a class that I mentioned in the beginning? Uh, two, it's going to allow us to start exploring right away uh, whether there are, are enough differences between the class members and the potential class members to uh, tell the judge, hey, there's too many things that aren't uniform here. We can't have a class action. And then three, it's going to give us a sense of what the exposure is. And the exposure, that calculation, I think drives a lot of what the client is going to want to do, right? Sometimes they may want, they may say, okay, it's a big number, you know, let's try and settle this. Or they may say, hey, you know, let's fight it and let's go from there. Um, but those are really, I think, important steps to take in the beginning in terms of trying to figure out who's in the class and then, um, figuring out what the class action defenses are going to be. Um, the other thing that I would recommend is, and this really should be for any lawsuit, but particularly in the class action setting, I think you want to dive into what are our exit strategies. And by that, I mean both legal exit strategies and sort of business exit strategies. And the legal, of course, are, you know, that's up to the lawyer. Um, you know, what are, what are we going to say the law says about this particular subject that can help the client get out? Are there any statistics that you might know off the top of your head in terms of what percentage of class action suits are victorious, defended, settled? They're going to follow the trend that most litigation does today, uh, Dave, and that is most of them are going to be settled. So I think, you know, that is, you know, in terms of looking for a lawyer down the road, and maybe we'll talk about this later, but you know, you need somebody who's been at that negotiating table that knows how to take on one of these. Yeah, no question. Uh, securities, law, consumer products, those are two that come to my mind when I think about class action. What, mm -hmm. I mean, we talked about trends, but what other types of class action lawsuits do you find that are most visible, if you will? Yeah. I think it would be the ones that I mentioned earlier, uh, frankly. The ones I see coming out now are more about data breach and data privacy. And data privacy in particular, David. Um, everybody knows that there's this you know, general data regulation over in Europe. And frankly, a lot of the states in the United States are now modeling their data privacy laws after that GDPR uh, uh, type uh, regulatory regime. And there's a tremendous amount of focus on giving consumers control over their data again and giving them a chance to uh, sue if somebody invades their privacy or if their data is used in a way that they don't consent to. And so 
that really is becoming a focus of a lot of the, the lawsuits. A lot of the, in turn, you ask for visibility, that is going to be a highly visible area in the next couple of years. Gotcha. Um, and I still think, you know, empl employment type cases are always going to be visible. Um, you know, and I mentioned, I think, Me Too at one point. And yes, you know, people can say, well, there was that Walmart versus Dukes case where the Supreme Court said, gee, this is too many uh, women suing for discrimination. This can't be a class action. And yes, defendants have uh, used that case successfully in a number of instances and in a lot of class actions uh, to argue uh, reasons why a class should not be certified. But you have to keep in mind that was a national class action. I think, you know, on the Me Too level, uh, there can be cases where that might get certified on a much smaller level. So I still think that's going to be a highly visible people, uh, visible area in the class action realm. Good. Uh, thank you for that. And on that note, unfortunately, we've got to wrap things up. Our time went by very, very quickly. Thanks for joining us Behind the Numbers. My guest today was Jim Griffith, partner at Rieger, Rizzo, and Darnell. And until next time, take care. We'll see you on Behind the Numbers. Okay. All right.